This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Just to let you know, this week's episode does include some swearing and we talk about drug addiction too. This week, we're looking at two huge celebrity stories. First, the sad parting of Matthew Perry, best known as Chandler Bing in Friends. Please, could you be more out of my league? Ross, back me up here. And... Oh yeah, foshes, foshes, genuine. What's up, homie? Britney's back, bitch. But this time, it's her tell-all memoir. If you haven't read it, we've got you covered. You're listening to Pop Culture with me, Shantae Joseph, for The Guardian. Late on Saturday night, the news broke that Matthew Perry had died. The iconic friend star passed away at 54, and it really felt like world-shaking news. Since then, his friends' co-stars put out a joint statement, and in New York, fans have been laying flowers on the sidewalk outside the friend's apartment. He's had these really well-documented struggles with addiction and it felt like a, a kind of redemption narrative and then he dies so young you know he's only 54 he was only 54 so that just felt that just felt really sad from a kind of hu- human objective point of view but I think a lot of people were also cast back to the innocence of that of his whole period at the start at the kind of peak of his fame you know between 94 and 2004. Zoe Williams is a columnist for The Guardian. This week, she wrote about how Matthew Perry captured the spirit of the age through his acting. It just looked so kind of completely unserious in the best possible way. Everybody was having a blast. Everybody was living their best life. Nobody took themselves too seriously. Why is your family Scottish? Why is your family Ross? And it kind of, it slotted in with the optimism of the age to an extent. It felt like it was mirroring the hedonism and the, and the recklessness um, right back at us. And, you know, in retrospect, that wasn't really what was going on, certainly not for Matthew Perry himself. 
but that but so so you're sort of mourning that fiction and the and the fact that you bought it in the first place and what do we know about his early life so his early life his parents split up just before he was one his dad moved to hollywood to make it as an actor his dad was never that successful i think he was in the old spice adverts and his mom actually was really successful but not as an actor obviously she was press aide to pierre trudeau justin trudeau's dad he always describes his kind of very disconnected family not really feeling like part of his mom's new life his mum remarried you know his dad was an alcoholic but then he has this nice line I mean sad line in his memoir that says the thing which really bugged him was that his dad obviously also struggled with addiction but got through it just by going on a long walk and then wham he was clean which was not Matthew Perry's experience by the time he was 14 he was seeded as a tennis player in Canada which is pretty extraordinary actually but he's had also started drinking at about that time and he reckons by the time he was 15 he was it, to all intents and purposes, dependent on alcohol. I'd never drank before, and I just sort of drank this entire bottle of what was called Anwar's Baby Duck. That was the name of the wine. And I lay in the grass and just was in, was in heaven. And I thought to myself, this must be the way that normal people feel all the time. And I thought that at 14. I guess what most people will know him for is being Chandler Bing in Friends. He really embodied that character. I mean, in in your piece, you talk about the way he made this character more than just a side piece on the show. Yeah, I mean, he so he arrived for that audition and felt so personally and kind of, you know, simpatico with Chandler, the character, that A, his actor friends had been coming to him for tips on how to also audition themselves because everybody thought they were exactly the same. And B, he had the confidence to just completely step off the script and start making up material on the spot. Nevertheless, they they didn't give it to him in the first instance because he was... Um, slated to be in some space show and it was uh, there was an element of serendipity because the space show got cancelled and um he was he was brought in famously he he did write a lot of material not just for his own character but also for the others they didn't use everything they used about 20 percent of what he what he did but it's quite telling because writers hate it when actors bowl in with their ideas they absolutely hate it and the fact that they treated his with respect, I think, speaks to, well, his kind of strengths as a comic writer. You, you've read his autobiography. He's He was a really funny guy, which is so rare in a celebrity memoir. I mean, it's so rare. You might sometimes get a disclosing one, but to get one that makes you laugh out loud is really unusual. Yeah. He kind of just had this sort of like air of confidence. Like, I'm just going to say, this is what's in my mind. This is what I find enjoyable. This is what I find funny. This is my life story. I don't feel the need to heavily sanitize it because I know how to write in a way that isn't going to be kind of offensive. Like, it's going to be entertaining. And he does that so well. Hey, Chandler, when you see Frankie, tell him Joey Tribbiani says hello. He'll know what it means. (laughs) You sure he's going to be able to crack that code? After Friends, like you know, it's it's that horrible feeling of like not necessarily peaking too early, but like Friends was you know the peak for him. Why why was that the case? We had this conversation so often in the nineties that you know they were such hot shit. Those all six of them, they 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 could have got cast in anything they wanted. They could have got any kind of vanity project moving. They could have really made it work because they were just the kind of itist of the it crowd. The truth is people didn't really want to see them as anything other than 
who they were in Friends because everybody was so into those characters. You could give Matthew Perry a role in a kind of romance. You could give Jennifer Aniston a sort of Sandra Bullock role. And she did kind of go near that electric fence a lot of times. But in the end... If you were going to see Jennifer Aniston, you wanted to see Rachel. If you were going to see Matthew Perry, you wanted to see Chandler Bing. So they were kind of caught in this really uncomfortable place where they they either did kind of replays of those roles in different projects, which would never have worked, or they kind of tried to strike out and that didn't really get the pickup either. And you also in the piece talk about this whole idea of like after Jennifer Aniston married Brad Pitt, people were kind of happy but it's because they saw it as like Rachel marrying Brad Pitt and they were kind of always these characters even outside of the show they can they never really escaped the people that they played essentially it was really really emotionally invested as though Rachel was getting married to a film star it was like it was like wow how on earth did that happen rather than you know one actor getting married to another and that and that kind of got replayed a little bit when um when they split up and he and he kind of I don't want to say went off with but that's kind of what happened when he went off with with Angelina Jolie people experienced it emotionally as though somebody had just left Rachel and it was such a big deal and I think Matthew Perry did kind of come into he he people kind of processed him as the romantic loser that he was in Friends now that wasn't completely the story you know he got. He went out with Julia Roberts. That is not a romantic loser move, even if he did then later dump her to prevent her dumping him. But people were really, it's almost like they were projecting so hard that he was Chandler that nothing he did could really happen if if it went too far away from what Chandler would have done. And I wonder how much he kind of internalized that. Yeah, and I imagine it's it's a lot to carry as well to continue to be the person that people saw you as many years ago when you were on a show when you were much younger like you kind of just grow up and grow out of all of that stuff but you're left in that in that moment that was definitely the thing with Matthew Perry the depredations of his worst years of opioid abuse were unbelievable right 55 pills a day it's amazing he didn't die much younger and and he was there were kind of details in the memoir like he was going to open house estate agent viewings because he could sometimes find pills in their medicine cabinet because he couldn't get prescribed them without faking like another injury or another and it's just really tragic a but b he must have struggled to kind of hold it together to actually do turn in those performances and then of course there is what you talk about that kind of disconnect between Every, all of them are meant to be exactly like their characters and we're heavily invested in them being exactly like their characters. But Chandler was this kind of very clean living, quite square, quite nerdy dude. I think Matthew Perry did feel the weight, and he certainly wrote about this, felt the weight of that disconnect and how it was worse for him because yeah. all the other cast members, I mean, Lisa Kudrow was a lot more intelligent than Phoebe, <laughs> but she wasn't a different creature, whereas he actually was quite a different creature. He was much more tortured. Yeah. He wrote his memoir, Friends, Lovers and the Big Terrible Thing in 2022. And so what would you say we kind of learned about him from that memoir like everything from the fact that he beat up Justin Trudeau when he was a kid because he was just very very competitive to the all the all the tennis you don't realize what that obsessional 
what kind of results that obsessional personality delivered before he started putting it full time into finding opioids. The real tragedy is that it was after, a, you know, he was a heavy drinker and probably recreational drug user, but, but it was only after a jet ski accident when he was filming with Salma Hayek that he ended up prescribed opioids. And I really feel this keenly that, you know, it is not unusual for somebody who gets success very long and has very young and has a lot of demons to become addicted to, to this, that or the other. And I, and I just really, it, it, it's just really, really sad. We're talking about um, Britney's memoir on this episode and kind of in her memoir, she talks about the fact that being in these celebrity circles, even at a young age, she was very, very aware of the fact that addiction was a serious problem. Like people were doing a lot of drugs, still showing up, you know, in some cases, still showing up to do their their jobs perfectly fine, but they were really suffering behind the scenes. And I, I guess I wonder what his story tells us about the relationship between fame and addiction. That's a really interesting and massive question, Shante. <laughs> I think there's a huge amount of normalisation. Basically, you become, and this is more true of the cast of Friends than probably anybody else acting at that time you become such a resource for the show for the studio that all the kind of energy goes into propping you up and making sure you can carry on performing so there were times with Perry's life when he was actually living in rehab and still turning up to, to the set because whatever happened the show had to go on and that's something that probably is more true of tv than it is of um, films. When I, I noticed that as soon as he passed, a lot of people were sharing a quote from him where he kind of talks about the fact that, you know, when I die, a lot of people are going to talk about friends and they're going to talk about my role in friends. Is if somebody comes up to me and says, I can't stop drinking, can you help me? I can say yes and follow up and do it. Actually, I want to be remembered for the way I helped people get over addiction and how I use my story to help I've said this for a long time. When I die, I don't want friends to be the first thing that's mentioned. I want that to be the first thing that's mentioned. And I'm going to live the rest I guess, what does that kind of tell us about him and what his legacy will be? I mean, I, f- I really felt, f- I, I felt a bit chastened by that. He was, his home was basically a rehab centre for guys for a long time. Exactly what you say about the way he wrote, you know, the, the way he could handle really difficult material because he had such confidence in his own self-expression. He really helped a lot of people for the, for the same reason. He had such a lot of confidence and so, and so much disclosure. He was so open and honest that he did, he did help a lot of his peers and a lot of people who weren't famous. And mm. yeah, we, we have forgotten it. But you know, you know what it is with the, with the kind of building narrative. It's very hard for him to get to be that person who helped others through addiction when he died in the circumstances that he did. And it and yeah. it sort of it sort of demands that you take it with like a lot more nuance than we're used to. So it's not like yeah. either redemption or disaster. So it's just like a maybe a little bit of toggling between redemption and disaster. I don't know when I'm gonna see you again. Well I'm guessing uh, tonight at the coffee house. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Take care. Yeah. If you've been affected by issues relating to addiction, in the UK, you can call Action on Addiction on 0300-330-0659. 
Okay, let's take a minute. And when we come back, we're getting into the tea that is Britney's The Woman in Me. Britney said there's only two types of people in the world. The ones that subscribe to this podcast and the ones that are boring. So you know what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're loving the show, don't be a loser and leave a review. Share with your Britney obsessed friends and subscribe. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back, Porsches, Porsches, genuine. As long as I've been alive, Britney has been a star. Hit Me Baby One More Time came out when I was three years old. I remember being mesmerized watching that video and just obsessed with how perfect she seemed. I feel like I grew up with Britney and watching her rise and fall felt personal. Now she's back with the highest selling celebrity memoir in history. So of course we have to get into the unforgettable moments on this podcast. Her behavior on Instagram is what it is. She's dancing with knives, like she's having a great time. <laughs> to chat about all things Britney, with me is Alim Karaj, music journalist and Britney mega fan. The first time I saw her was probably on Top of the Pops. Mm-hmm. And I must have been about eight years old. <laughs> After seeing her, we went to Woolworths <laughs> and bought the cassette of Baby One More Time, the single. And I remember seeing her on TV growing up constantly. There was a really fun TV special she did with Frank Skinner, which is on YouTube. (laughs) And it's just like a special just with him and Britney that I watched with my brother. I remember seeing it and just thinking that she had a really good sense of humour about herself. Mm. How many people are in the the Britney posse? I think I have like 20 people. Yeah, 20 or 30. You haven't counted them recently? No. no. For me, I think it was definitely like the Hit Me Baby One More Time video, just like absolutely iconic. That just felt like pop 
music. It was like, this is the girl that I want to be when I go to school. Obviously, I had frumpy, crusty, <laughs> ugly school uniform. So I was never, I was never giving Hemi Baby one more time, but it was just such an iconic moment in, in, in pop culture, but also for Britney herself. And why do you think it was that she was such a huge star? Part of it was timing. Mm. Pop had been dominated by like boy bands and girl groups, but there hadn't been a solo like female artist that had appealed to the sort of young audiences that like those groups were being marketed towards. Mm -hmm. And so Britney was like the perfect storm for that. Like she came in, she was young, she was approachable, she was beautiful. She had a really distinctive, unusual voice. Mm. Yeah, I think it just hit. I think it just was like, bam, this is the perfect synergy of like all these different things coming together. And getting into the memoir, you you wrote an article in Dazed about it, which was so good, by the way. Like you're Thank just you. chef's kiss. Like the <laughs> pen was on fire when you wrote that. And you are basically saying that people may actually be reading this book because of like the juicy Hollywood drama. You were kind of saying that the story that won't get as much attention is the fact that there's this sort of like devastating erosion of Britney Spears as an artist. And for as long as Britney Spears has been releasing music, her credentials have always been questioned. I mean, Britney writes about this in the book. She Mm. says, my authenticity was really questioned at all times. And she was like, what did people expect from me? I wasn't Bob Dylan. Like I signed my name with a love heart. (laughs) Yes, she wasn't Bob Dylan. Sometimes I had a hand in writing her own songs. Sometimes she didn't. Like all modern pop stars would get given a bunch of songs and they Mm. would pick which ones would work for whatever project she was working on. But I don't think that that should diminish the fact and the importance of her desire to perform, her sense of identity that came with that. It clearly was like an integral part of her life. Like she needed to do it. Like she lived and breathed singing performing, Mm. dancing, entertaining. And I don't know that the value of that is any lower just because she wasn't sat around strumming a guitar. When I think of Britney, I see her as more of a performer. And I think before chatting with you, I, I did kind of see it as maybe a bit manufactured and feeling like, you know, every artist should be this like tortured creative that has this like deep history of like knowledge and literature and they're drawing from that to create these expressive pieces of art. I do wonder if this whole idea of her cred- her credentials being questioned was something that was pushed a lot in the media, kind of how they covered her and how they treated her. Really early in the book, Britney talks about like the differences between dancers in LA and New York. Yes. And she's like, New York dancers have more heart. And I think it's a really interesting observation from her because she obviously was known for her dancing. And when she was putting together these performances, even if it was just like an award show, mm. the choreography and everything would was always so tight. And she knew where she was pulling her references from. I think these are the things that people like overlook when they think about Britney Spears as like being an artist. There was a lot of stuff around her love life, particularly when it came to Justin Timberlake and Kevin Federline. Yeah, I think I was surprised by just how significant the relationship with Justin was and how much time was spent focused on it and how it, sh- how it was that relationship that really kind of kick-started 
everything that led to the conservatorship. She talks about how she had an abortion. She talks about how he cheated on her multiple times, how she cheated on him once. When NSYNC went to London in 2000, photographers caught him with one of the girls from All Saints in a car. But I never said anything. Another time we were in Vegas, and one of my dancers who'd been hanging out with him told me he gestured toward a girl and said, yeah, man, I hit that last night. She talks about the split. He broke up with her while she was on the set of a music video via text. I think even in 2002 was, like, bad. Terrible. It's giving flashbacks to Katy Perry getting the text from he who shall not be named, Voldemort, and her just having that breakdown. I just can't imagine, like... And then Britney went out and performed in that music video. It's the overprotected Dark Child remix, should you want to watch it. I was surprised by just how much of an emphasis there was on Justin, especially because this book was about, felt like it was going to be about the conservatorship and what happened there. But actually, Mm. it makes sense because it's important context. Yes. And she said something in a documentary once where she said that he was a part of like the magnitude that she'd become. Her identity as Britney Spears, the pop star, was intrinsically linked with her relationship with Justin. So Mm. when that relationship ended, she was kind of adrift, but then also painted as this kind of harlot because he went round and told everyone that she cheated on him and weaponized her sexuality and wrote an album about her. Even when she talks about Justin Timberlake performing more recently and he says on the stage, you know, oh, I shouldn't really perform this song, but I'm going to do it anyway. And he starts singing Cry Me River. He has kind of lapped up this narrative and really, really pushed it and used it to propel him as an artist. And so she, I feel like it, she probably spends so much time there because she kind of has a lot of her own side to tell because it's like, this guy has been running with this narrative for ages and I haven't really been in a position to speak out. But now on my days, listen, you're going to get it. You're absolutely going to get it. Where's my umbrella? Yeah, running around <laughs> unchecked for 20 years, she should go and bust his car up. <laughs> they also, I think, were working with the media culture that, surrounded them too you know they knew that they could paint her in a certain way and get away with it and that wouldn't ever be questioned yeah and in the book she talks a lot about the way that she was kind of interviewed compared to someone like Justin and the way people would just be interested in her body but with Justin it was so much more than that they wanted to know more about him as a person but she was just such an object there's one subject we didn't discuss Mm -hmm. what was that everyone's talking about it right well your breasts. I think those talk show journalists have like a lot to answer for. Mm-hmm. for Diane they, Sawyer. Diane Sawyer. My mm-hmm. goodness, that Diane Sawyer interview. I think there's a quote in the book where Britney says, like, that Diane Sawyer interview was the moment that everything broke mm-hmm. for her. She's being grilled like she's committed some sort of <laughs> horrendous crime. And he's, he's left the impression that, that you weren't faithful, that you betrayed the relationship. I think everyone has a side of their story. And um, to make them feel a certain way, to make them feel... Something that really broke my heart was she performed at the VMAs in the year 2000. Mm. And afterwards, MTV had her on TRL and they had people talk about what they thought about her performance. Yes. It's like, why would you do that? Why would you have... Why would you elevate someone? You know, she sold the VMAs. Yes. The VMAs were the Britney show for the the period that she was performing. To then use like your biggest asset and kind of abuse it in that way, it just seems 
absolutely abhorrent to me. It just felt a bit irrational at times, the distaste for Britney. Why was she just, why was she the butt of the joke all the time? I think because she was an easy target. Mm. You know, she she writes about how she was kind of raised to be this very polite, very sort of Southern girl, young woman, how that kind of shaped how she went through the kind of cutthroat music industry. Mm. You know, she would allow people to get away with things because she wanted to be polite and be nice all the time. And she didn't want to assert herself. She didn't mm. want to be a diva. But also I think she was sort of groomed from a young age to be malleable. Amid a media frenzy, the 26-year-old pop star was brought by ambulance to a Los Angeles hospital from her Beverly Hills home. Another chapter in her long-running custody battle with ex-husband Kevin Federline over their two sons. We have to talk about the conservatorship because when I kind of look back at the early 2000s and even just reading the book, it kind of felt a bit like random. One minute she's doing this, she's doing great. The next minute her mom's like, hey, the police are after you. Come to our house. And there's helicopters and they take her away. Her dad wasn't even really in her life. She was kind of providing mainly for her mom and her sister. You know, she bought them a house. She was taking care of them. Then all of a sudden, her dad was in charge of of her estate, of her affairs. That period of 2006 to 2008, her behavior was erratic. Mm. And she does admit to, you know, doing things that were perhaps seen as unusual. And she had been held already once under the Mental Health Act in in America. And then obviously she was held again and that's when they swooped in and put her under the conservatorship. It was an extreme measure for someone who obviously didn't need it. I do wonder whether there were outside forces perhaps interfering with her father and suggesting, you know, these are things you could do in order to sort of gain control or financial control or Mm. one very strange scene where she's talking about before she goes on Diane Sawyer and her father and a group of men show up yeah and then sort of strong on and then the day after her team are like you're going to go and do Diane Sawyer it's never really explained who those people are or how they had so much control over her and her team at that stage Mm -hmm. so early on already so I think there must have been things happening behind the scenes that we don't know about she might not even know about them it is extreme and it does seem like it to come out of nowhere The bit that really stuck with me was when she had a hairdresser who saw her schedule and was shocked at how much stuff she had to do and told Brittany. And then the next day, she was gone. The book really shows how isolated she become. You think it's too much, I asked her. It's more than too much, she said. That's insane. She leaned in like she had a secret to tell me. Listen, she said, in order to be creative, you have to have room for play in your schedule. It helps ground you to have that time to yourself. Hell, to just stare at the wall if you want. People need that. It must have gotten back to my father what she'd said. That whole kind of controlling of every aspect of Britney's life down to the people that was around her. They couldn't even say things that may make her question how hard she's working or what she's doing. It was chilling. The one thing that felt like somewhat of a positive was the fact that she was aware that her fans knew she was being treated like this and she I think she was in rehab at this point and one of the staff one of the nurses there showed her like footage and newspaper articles of where the free Britney movement was growing of where her fans were really kicking up a fuss about her treatment and it just kind of felt like thank god she knew at that point that her fans were supporting her but i mean how instrumental were they do you think to her to her journey for a long time 
the fans, myself included, were sort of complicit in the conservatorship because we were being gaslit by her team and her mm. family and being told, like, she's not mentally stable enough. And then when she disappeared at the beginning of 2019, that was when people were like, wait, something's going on, something's not right. And that's where this sort of actual movement grew from. I think for a long time she's been seen as a sort of mad woman. And she might be a mad woman, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I am too. No one's going to put me in a conservatorship. Exactly. And I, I think we've seen extreme thing that's happened post the end of the conservatorship where because a conspiracy theory turned out to be true, mm. the conspiracy theorists have gone truly out of control. Her behavior on Instagram is what it is. She's dancing with knives. <laughs> like, she's having a great time. Yeah. But people think that, like there's danger and they're calling the police to our house yes. and stuff. So there's this sort of element that like, even though she's out of this situation, that scrutiny has still not gone away. It's just manifesting in like another form. And so I find it a bit difficult yes. to kind of know. I think people don't know when to like to step away. What I think about at the end of this episode and after these conversations is the way that we internet users, people online kind of turned Britney into a bit of a meme and we all laughed along and we kind of made a joke of it and it became kind of pop culture folklore. But actually when you read her book, you realize that these were very manic and horrible times for her and the internet laughed and they keep on laughing, but now we're actually beginning to realize the true magnitude of what she was going through. So the next time you see something that feels clickbaity online about a celebrity, maybe take a step back before turning it into a joke. Because 20 years later, when the real story comes out, you might realize you were part of the problem. That's all for this week. This week's episode was produced by Hattie Moya Moya and sound designed by Myla Seda. Original music by Axel Kutier. The executive producer is Mass of the Heart. See you next Thursday. This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... Don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, 
you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.